Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, president of Seamless Docs Federal, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. So, Danny, this has been the longest gap in close to a year in uh, in our Gov Actually podcast. We apologize to the audience. It's definitely your fault. It is entirely my fault, but that's a that's a different story. We'll do that another time. Okay. Maybe a different podcast. You know, the, yeah. the one that's about personalities Wait, and not about Gov Actually. Something more about our our you know our personal reflections, getting away yes. from government, yes. what's going on in our lives. I, I, I'm pretty sure that would have. Uh, even less, less, less right? <laughs> yeah. but because um, uh, uh, no. we both lead pretty boring lives. Well, yes, exciting in a very you know kind of that's what makes way. us so compelling as potential choices to return to government at some point and be public officials right. again. Because the more boring your life, your personal life is, the more easier it is to that's true to get through the process. That's Both true. the FBI background investigation for security clearance and then the Senate confirmation. I've I've been through this process, you have too, and it's a couple of people remarked to me about how boring my life has been while I was right. on this journey. Well I, I had even people who were doing the vetting comment on how boring my life was. And they're like, you make my job easy and, and I, I yes. felt bad. I mean I like if you're doing that job, I imagine you do it in part because you want to hear well, exciting I, and interesting. I, I will tell the story. <laughs> this is maybe this is too much information for the podcast, but I'm uh, I'm in. I'll tell the story that when I I was a career government employee, as you know, and then offered an opportunity to become a political appointee, and in doing so, I had to fill out. I think it's the SF two forty eight. It's your financial disclosure. I can't remember the number. Something like that. Two eighty six. Two eighty. I can't remember what the numbers, but it's your financial disclosures. And so. I fill out my financial disclosure form, provide it to my ethics attorney. They submit it up to the Hill, and the Hill responds back and says, uh, Danny Werfel, for his uh, financial disclosure, you accidentally submitted a blank form. Right. And the ethics attorney is like, no, no. this is a career government guy, and uh, yeah. he, he really is that poor. No, yeah, literally, <laughs> all the all the boxes on the left were meant to be checked. Exactly. Under Under $5,000, yes, exactly. Well, it's very interesting. A form goes up in $5,000 increments for the first four columns. Yeah. And then it starts leaping into this stratosphere like which I've never know, I've never more looked than at that five million dollars and, and I'm like wouldn't that be way more interesting to know <laughs> yeah, the difference between five and fifty million dollars than between five and fifteen thousand yes yes but again I've never really looked at that end of the form so no. so my my uh, similar experience there was um, uh, my wife's uh, purse had been stolen and her checkbook was in it and um we quickly canceled all the checks that were in in her purse, um, not realizing that two of the checks were checks to the IRS and the DC Treasurer. So we had paid our taxes. Oh wow! With the checks in her checkbook, so uh, about 
a week later, the IRS. Oh, I totally remember this when I I remember. No, I'm just no, kidding. Right. <laughs> exactly. When I was the IRS commissioner, exactly right. this was like a, top top yeah, of my list. Exactly right. So I got a, a, a friendly letter from the IRS saying uh, that that wasn't very nice of you to pay us with a canceled check. <laughs> um, you uh, now owe us a twenty five dollar canceled check fee and a dollar twenty three in interest. <laughs> and uh, so I paid our dutifully paid the taxes and paid the penalty and and paid the interest. And one of the questions. I got in my um, uh, uh, financial disclosure form at Treasury was, have you ever paid any penalties or interests on your taxes? And so I explained to the background vetter from the FBI that, yeah, actually, I, I just did. And she she laughed like $25, $1.20, yeah. no problem. And then she called me back the next day. She's like, I've never I've never had to do this before, but I need you to write a memo describing for the $26 for the $26 and 20 cents. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, it's a very, it's a very careful process or at least it was. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that was amazing. I mean, I obviously we were both vetted during, during one administration. Um, I don't know what the process is in other administrations, but it was, I had similar moments I felt where, there was a pause or scrutiny on as boring as I am on something right. of that level of, of detail and nuance. And you're like, really, are we really okay? You really want to go there? Um, so, and there, there is no de minimis rule in these things. When you sign those forms, you're, you're saying that to, you know, you're, you're, you're basically agreeing that any, you know, if you're leaving anything out, that that's kind of perjury. Yeah. And I could see like, I mean, this has come up in the news a lot recently. It's like people forgetting something. I mean, sometimes it's more material than others, but I've been testing myself trying to think like, could I remember conversations that I had eight months ago or whether someone said something to me in passing at an event? And mm. I, I think I'd be really bad at that. I don't, I, I've been like doing these self tests just for reasonableness. Cause when something comes on the news and it's like, is it believable that he would or she would not have remembered that? I always like say, well, let me test myself. And I think... So you might have forgot that you talked to the Russian ambassador? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying that I like to self-test these things. And the reality is, and I thought about this a lot when I was at the IRS, because as you know, you testify a lot before Congress and you never want to, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's never too pleasant to be that person testifying before Congress that's saying... You know, I, I don't remember, I don't recall, and then and then MSNBC or Fox News or someone puts together just a string of you on tape saying, I don't recall, I don't remember, like right. 26 times well, in a row. Well, what's worse, though, is then when they have another tape that has you answering the question in some other speech or something. Well, that would, yeah. Or a picture with you and, yeah. you know, that person you didn't recall. So yeah. that's... So, so I, I've I, stressed about that when I was yeah. at the IRS was... Is, so, is someone going to ask me a question about an interaction, a conversation, and am I going to be able to remember the circumstances? Um, and then, and then, but, but I didn't want to be that person who's always like, I don't recall, I don't remember. But the truth of the matter is, right. sometimes I can't remember conversations I had a week yeah. ago. Um, I think that's normal, but um, well, and that's why the. But then there are these material things, like like sometimes something will flash across the news, and then be like, he doesn't or she doesn't remember. Like, I think I would have remembered that. So it's me self-testing. Well, that's why the QFRs, the questions for the record, are always so carefully. Vetted. Yeah, and that's why when you testify, it's I mean it's helpful 
to think about these caveats that are honest caveats, like to the best of my recollection. Exactly. You know, I believe what happened rather than the firm. And I think that's a fair, some of those caveats are really fair because we have imperfect memories uh, and we often state things imperfectly and we're not intending to mislead in those situations. And that's why you see so many people who testify giving these kind of, these, uh, these, well, they're not giving categorical statements. They're very seldom saying yes, no. And that's yeah. why the legislators are always saying, can you give me a yes or no answer to that question? Yeah, I know. But every once in a while, I think it, I have, when I, when I've, I've, I've from time to time advise people on how to testify and, not, and how not to testify, um, if, if people want my input. And, and what I, on the yes, no question, I, I kind of warn people that sometimes mm-hmm. what happens in the testimony is you're asked a yes, no question that, that really is unfair to you as the witness to position yes or no, and you equivocate and you should equivocate. But then sometimes what happens is they ask a really straightforward softball yes, no, that you can gladly right. answer yes, no, but right. you're so trained, you equivocate, and then you sound really defensive. Right. You know, and your and, name is Danny Werfel, yes or no? Well, I'm well, not, it's yeah. not, it's uh, actually, uh, <laughs> yeah, <we're in>. exactly. <laughs> and so I, 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 I counsel people if they're if they're asking for my input if you see an opportunity to ask answer a yes or no question with just a yes or no take it because then it, it demonstrates your ability your to ability answer to answer yes questions no. directly and then later you've you've bought some capital in the ability later in the testimony to to equivocate on a yes or no question that that, that you really don't feel is is right to be pinned down well, on. well then mr Werfel, i have a very straightforward yes or no question for you Please. as the former well, then, irs well, i'm not testifying i'm not under How oath do you, so. do you support the current tax reform proposals before the congress of the united states of america that's a great question which i just yeah. didn't answer yes or no <laughs> exactly. um, by the way when i whenever i answer the a question that's a great question yeah my wife who's caught on to this trick says that's a terrible answer yeah, but it, I really thought it was a great question. And by me saying that's a great question, it bought me time to figure right. out how to answer And I feel smarter and validated for asking it. You should. Which is a, should. a good thing for you to get here. What, what I love about that question, and we can get into it a little bit, um, is when I, when I was the IRS commissioner and I was testifying and, and I would get a question about that really required me to answer a question that answered, are you, do you agree with this tax policy as a policy matter? Mr. Commissioner, I'm asking you a question about a tax policy. Is this the right policy or the wrong policy? The right answer for an IRS commissioner is to say, I'm agnostic on the policy. That's for, that's for you to decide, Senate Finance Committee or Committee of Ways and Means. That's for the tax policy officials at the United States Treasury to make those determinations on the public policy tensions of a particular tax policy. My job is to administer it. And what I, is to administer whatever you and your wisdom come up with is the right tax policy. And if I'm sitting at the table of a tax policy discussion, my, the answer to my question is not whether this tax is equitable across different income groups. It's not the question of whether it, what the deficit impact is or is not. It's all, can we administer it? And, 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 and do I have the tools and the ability to administer it with integrity, um, and that's and and so t- still to this day, when I'm kind of understanding and digesting the tax bill, which is hard to it's a lot to take in, um, I've been thinking about it through the lens of what's administrable, and in particular because 
if we're going to do tax reform, my big thing would be can we simplify mm -hmm. the tax code in a really meaningful way that, uh, that does a couple of things. One, it, it helps the IRS be able to administer with greater effectiveness and integrity and, and positions them to be successful in essentially closing the tax gap. The tax gap is the difference between what's owed by the American people and by companies versus what the IRS actually collects. How big is that? It's roughly, at any given point, it's, it's usually in the 300 to $400 billion range. So it's big. So it's like half the annual deficit at any given time. Yeah, it's a big amount, right? And they study it and look for the root causes and, and very often, complexity in the tax code drives something. I have a, the great example of that uh, is the, uh, the errors associated with the earned income tax credit. Mm -hmm. So the issue with the earned income tax credit, which is a tax credit that goes to low-income individuals and families, uh, proponents from a, ta from a policy standpoint consider the earned income tax credit to be one of the more critically important income maintenance programs that we have in the U.S. and it's a, it's an extraordinarily po extraordinarily popular program for those that advocate for these types of income maintenance programs. And the interesting thing about the EITC is it came out of a uh, desire by President Nixon to actually explore a a minimum income for uh, for all Americans. So Which the is idea was to replace kind of our welfare and social um, social services system with a minimum income. Yeah. And and so, and so it's. Uh, but but here's the thing about it: it has a really high error rate. It has got the highest error rate in all of government. It's what like, causes that? Well, what caught? Well, the error rate's about twenty-five percent. Wow! So one in every four dollars that is spent on an income tax credit is spent incorrectly. Now, what causes it? It's it's the complexity of the formula to determine who's eligible. And a, an example of that is one of the criteria to to claim the credit is that you have to have lived with your dependent child for six months or more in the year in which you're claiming the credit. Well, we don't know. The IRS doesn't know who's where the child is living. There's no national childhood residency database. If your kid lives exactly six months with you and then six months with you know your former partner, can both of you claim no, the credit? No, only one can claim the credit, uh -huh. which is another really interesting tension. So, so let me, but that's a really great, a great question. Again, a great question. Thank you. Uh, you're wow, on a roll. I feel totally validated. This or I'm the, just, or it was a lousy question. I'm just trying to think of an exactly answer. Exactly right. Yeah. So, uh, but I'm going with validated. Anyway, that, let me finish the point on the complexity. So, getting the earned income tax credit right is like there's a narrow bullseye in terms of the complexity of all the eligibility criteria, and even and we've seen, we've seen experiences of of professional tax preparers being trained for 30 or 40 minutes on exactly how to fill this thing out and then filling it out and still making a mistake in terms, if that's how complicated it is. And, and it positions the IRS to run and administer a program that has a 25% error rate. So if you're gonna reform the tax code, can we do it in a way that eliminates some of this complexity and, and doesn't create, for example, these eligibility criteria like having lived with your child for six months, which is non-verifiable. Again, because there's and and no one's going to be a fan of creating a national childhood residency database. <laughs> and even if we did, it would be fraught with all types of errors in and of itself. You could imagine. So again, so that would, and but you raise an interesting question about um, the tensions of of tax policy sometimes with the 
with the child credit being claimed by two parents. Because think about this, this is a really interesting hypothetical, uh, but it actually happens, but where do you land on it? So it's my turn to ask you a, a tough question. So, um, so here's the question. We have a parent claim the credit for a child. Let's say the parents are separated. Parent claims the credit for a child, and the IRS knows now that child's been claimed because the Social Security number enters into the system, and the IRS now is aware this child has been claimed. No other parent can now claim this child for the tax credit. And then all of a sudden, a week later, two weeks later, guess what? Another tax return comes in claiming that same child. So the question then becomes, what should the IRS do at that moment? Should they, A, place a stop payment on the credit because one parent has already claimed the child, so the second that's an improper payment if the second parent, if this credit goes out to the second parent, or should they pay both and sort it out later? So I, when I first confronted this issue before I got to the IRS when I was at OMB, to me, and, I, and my job was to try to eliminate improper payments. Yes, you have the like, improper payments. Guess what uh, my answer was? First one wins. My answer was first one wins. Like why would the IRS pay a credit to a kid, to a child who's claimed a kid that's already been claimed and knowingly make an improper payment in that moment? And so I brought that issue to the table in a policy discussion. Mm -hmm. And there was a person somewhere else in the room who made the very compelling point, which is, but the IRS doesn't know that the first parent claimed the child correctly. And they painted the scenario. Imagine a scenario in which a single mother is taking care of her child. The father left, left them, is not paying alimony, is not supporting them. He's a jerk of some kind and has just abandoned the family. And runs he, down to the local tax preparer and the, who the, gives him a loan against the credit. Right. He claims the child first. The mom is is now trying to get her credit, which she needs. She's totally in the right, but the IRS is not paying the credit, and she has to wait weeks, if not months, for the IRS to sort it out. So the question then becomes, what's the right answer? And there's a it's tension. To audit everyone. Right? Well, there's a tension between equity and uh, and and improper payments or this tax gap issue. It's a great example, in my opinion, that 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 these issues are filled with these types of tensions. And, and how much is the earned income tax credit? For each individual, it's about $4,000 right. roughly. If you, if you, yeah. if you get well, the full credit. What does an audit cost? Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good question. Well, that's, More. yeah. Uh, well, it depends if it's a correspondence audit or a full scale uh, audit, but a full scale yeah. audit would certainly cost more. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, so to, to go back to your original question, I would hope that any tax reform bill, my, my, my hope would be that it would end up simplifying the tax code. And I, th I would hope that the IRS is engaged in the tax reform discussion, not from the vantage point of what the debates you hear on the news every day, which is, uh, or, or you read about, which is, is, the ta is it benefiting too much of the wealthy and not enough of middle class? And, you know, all these other issues that are, have emerged versus, is this going to make our ability to administer the tax code easier and therefore more effective. And then obviously also for the, for the citizens uh, who have to pay taxes, reducing the complexity, the paperwork burden, just kind of the sheer intimidation that sometimes exists in trying to do your taxes, I think that would be a huge benefit to people if we could, if we could uh, streamline some of that. 
I, I think your your point about simplification is fantastic, and actually, you you did more to answer the question than I actually ever imagined you would. I thought I was dodging it. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I I I thought you were gonna just say I can't answer that question, or I won't, or I thought you were beginning to dodge it by saying. Look, my job isn't to do policy. My job is to do operations. Well, this is a nonpartisan podcast. I, to- I totally right? agree. But I, and so I was just trying to lay a trap for you, which you didn't succumb to. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do have to say that in a way, you did kind of walk into a bit of policy there. And that's where operations can become policy. And that's where the actual, the actual um, doing of the, the government work uh, does actually uh, become an issue of policy and become possibly even a partisan discussion. But let's, um, let's, let's go back now to uh, not what, which is, you know, what would you do to the bill, um, and talk a little bit about how uh, you make a bill. And, and because that's such an exciting prospect, I think we should probably take a break. I don't know how people are going to last through the break. Yeah, well, it's a cliffhanger. Okay, right. cool. GovActually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. And Seamless Docs, the fastest, easiest way to move all your administrative data collection processes to the cloud. Seamless Docs helps make government beautiful. Okay, Danny, we're back. Uh, people have been waiting anxiously to to hear how um, tax reform proposals are put together. And it's actually, it's kind of fascinating in the sense that normally any legislative proposal would have, uh, in the administration would have, if not its origination, its kind of coordination, oversight, ultimate approval come out of OMB, but tax policy is a little different. Yeah, I mean, OMB has a kind of a weird relationship with the IRS and the tax process from everything that they do. Maybe I think the budget is a little bit more traditional, but the way in which regulations are reviewed, tax forms are reviewed, and certainly tax policy is formulated, the center of gravity is less on OMB and more on tax policy within Treasury. And I think that's in some ways cultural. I don't know that there's... There's actually, from what I understand, having spent time in, as we called it, the building, uh, a main treasury, it actually comes from the agreement that had OMB spun out of treasury. Oh, like in the 1920s? Yes, and that the, the deal wow. originally cut... So now I'm learning was, something. And it was, uh, and I think it's been codified by Charles Dawes cut the deal? MOUs, um, Actually, it's Charles Dawes' boss, the uh, the, the secretary, secretary of Treasury. Yeah, is yeah. that McAdoo or? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't now know. you're. Yeah. Yeah. The nice thing is, I could if you say it with uh, if it's uh, what is a, a fact is a, an opinion said with authority. So yeah, Charles McAdoo. Well, there you go. Um, uh, but uh, Billy, can you Google that? Yeah, right. <laughs> no, that's right. You have this Google thing. Um, but the deal was okay. We'll give you that budget and management stuff. But we're going to keep the tax policy stuff because that's what Treasury departments do. Mm, uh, okay. And it was really the it was really the tax and the finance stuff, the federal financing bank. Yeah. And OMB has been fighting both of those things ever since. And they they managed to shut down the FFB in the '90s and have been constantly kind of jousting with Treasury over tax policy. But you said something very interesting 
uh, when you were talking about the EITC, you, you talked about the cost of the EITC or spending money on the EITC. And that is this concept of a tax expenditure, which very seldom actually kind of shows up in people's conversations about um, about spending and about deficits. Yeah, but it, yes, that's a really good point. I used it as an example, but it's kind of more just looking at IRS's bottom line, money going in and money going out. And in particular, if you or, think about or, tax credits. Or money not coming in. So no, a tax credit a, would be, it's actually a tax credit is, is not money going out. Can be, depends. Well, it's money going out against money. That's owed. That's, yeah. 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 But sometimes you are indeed cutting a check. Yeah, so we had the program. Like a refund. We had the program during the um, the Recovery Act, which was cash in lieu of tax credits. We converted tax yeah, credits, that. which required you to have some kind of tax that you paid. We just converted it directly into essentially a grant. Right. So instead of you filing a credit against taxes you would pay and therefore not paying the taxes and therefore getting the money, you would actually just get a check. And that was a direct tax expenditure, whereas most, most tax expenditures are indirect in the sense that they are opportunity and, costs to the Treasury. Right. They can either be – they're either offsetting a, a balance due or if, you're, if you don't have a balance due, adding to your, your overall refund in terms of the back and forth. Mm -hmm. but, I, but I thought it was really interesting, the, the, the EITC discussion, because you raised a point right before the break. It's like – the operational issue I raised around what does the IRS do operationally if if two parents claim the credit really ends up being a policy question as well. And so, as much as the as much as when I was there and IRS commissioners both before and after me have really tried to stay out of the policy, you can't help but get involved in it. Um, and it's all about the kind of the whether it's administrable. I, the one other example I can think of is when I was at the IRS, there was uh, a lot of immigration discussion going on, uh, immigration reform, and there was a, I think a Senate bill that basically had a path to citizenship, which required as one of the prerequisites that the individual on the path to citizenship would have to pay any back taxes dating back from the day that they had come into the country mm. undocumented or illegally. And I remember reviewing that with my team saying, it's an interesting policy idea. It kind of, it resonates in terms of get yourself whole with the government and start fresh. And if you can kind of get yourself whole, then that's part of several other things you need to do to have a path to citizenship. But how do you do that? You know, how do you? How does the IRS go? I mean, a lot of these transactions were probably under the table. After all, the person was undocumented, and how do you rebuild that person's economic profile dating back years and come up with a balance due that's even close to anything but throwing a dart at a board? Um, and so we raised that issue. It wasn't about whether we were in favor of paths to citizenship or how many prerequisites to put in place before that. It was all about. What do you what do you do with this individual? So, so again, it's this fine line between the implementation and the policy itself. Really, there's a ton of fascinating questions that they have to deal with at the IRS, and I would imagine as they're sitting down to to deal with the tax reform bill, these are the types of questions that they're firing back and forth. There's actually a meeting that I would go to. I can't remember how often it was, maybe every two weeks, 
where I'd sit in main in the building mm-hmm. with the tax policy folks, and they would go over like. We'll talk a little bit about who the tax policy folks were or are. I mean, well, there, well, there's a mixture, I think, of political and civil servant uh, individuals who uh, are essentially in charge of thinking through the the tax policy of the administration, um, and the, you know, many of them just have kind of a they're they're actually incredible minds that know the tax. I mean, tax code's really tough, and these people not only know the tax code inside and out, but they are adept at kind of thinking through and very rapid fire, like what are some of the economic implications, the relationships between different parts of the code, the complexity and the, and the policy tensions involved. Um, it's, 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 an, it's an incredibly talented group. Um, and and they're, they're busy even when major tax reform isn't in play because the tax code is constantly being massaged and changed how each many, year. How many changes a year? I, I think I remember something like on the order of 2,000. It's, it's, yeah, and a lot of them are tweaks, right? Mm-hmm. And, it's, you know, and, it, and it needs to get out in time before tax filing season so that TurboTax and all the accountants that are out there and the forms can change. Um, and one change can have ripple effects uh, throughout the rest of the code. So it's, it's, an, it's really a, a, an impressive machinery that's involved in kind of rethinking. And then you have these moments like we have now and you've had in, in pre, I think, 1986 and in other periods in time where it's like, okay, we're going to do major, major tax reform. Um, and then it's a, it's, a, it's a much different process, I would imagine, where there's, uh, rather than just kind of meeting every other week, you're really uh, kind of trying to unpack in a lot of different ways what the implications are for tax administration writ large. Um, it's actually pretty exciting when you start opening up doors to, to broader reform efforts, if you have in mind a simplification, you know, a change to a set of loopholes or things like that, that you know, where where you're really changing um, how the whole thing is administered versus just t- changing a bracket um, can be, I think, it, it's not relatively straightforward from a macroeconomic standpoint. But it might be a little bit more straightforward from an implementation standpoint. And policy and implementation standpoint. Yeah. Just you change that line on the, ten, the 1040 and on the instructions and TurboTax changes its code. But um, Office of Tax Policy, I, I remember from my time at Treasury, was one of our smallest um, policy offices. That's it's true. Not the it's smallest. not a lot of people. Yeah. It's like three dozen people. It's, you know, it's between 30 and 40 people. And when you think about it, what they're, what they're moving in terms of uh, economic impact it's probably one of the most powerful, you know, three dozen people um, in the country in terms of, you know, yeah. economic impact. And you per better person. have done your homework when you go meet with them. Yeah. Because they, re- I mean, they're nice I, people. But, yeah. yeah. But, but but they will shut down something that's not right. well thought out from a, from a policy standpoint. In as much as the IRS will uh, will come will come at it very with a rich set of knowledge around. The administration part, but that was my role in the meeting. My role in the meeting really was just to kind of make sure I understood the direction they were going and flagging any risks that we saw with respect to implementation. We'll talk a little bit about the administration side because I think that um, just getting a sense. You know, one of the things that struck me was there was the scale of the operation, and um, the the fact that there was this assumption that everything needed to be a hundred percent correct. You know, so you had your your improper payments police running around 
talking about this 25% uh, error rate in EITC, but as you learned and started unpacking, like you know, the the opportunity cost of getting 100% accuracy. I have so many examples of that. You're you're absolutely right. It's true in tax administration. It's true elsewhere in government. But there really is an implied assumption amongst the policymakers of built-in error and built-in variance uh, and gap um, because the, what's needed to close those gaps are, are, not, are in many cases non-starters or there's not really an ability to align all the stakeholders to, to get there. So, uh, you know, we, we mentioned the example of the two parents. There really isn't um, a consensus across the stakeholder community in terms of exactly how to deal with that. But even like when I was there, we had an initiative, like one of the major um, causes of the tax cap is underreporting of cash by small businesses. I mean, you, you look at what are the major drivers of, of, of the balance due versus what the IRS collects, and you study where the money is missing, and you, offshore tax accounts is one. You know, there's, 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 there's several that you try to go after, and one of them is underreporting of cash by small businesses. And um, we were trying to come up with different methods of of dealing with this. And in fact, Congress had enacted some new tools for us a few years before I got to the IRS for how to attack this problem. And while I was at the IRS, we initiated like a pilot program to go after this issue. And, and the moment we started the process, I got called before the Small Business Committee because with angry members of Congress essentially saying, wait a minute, why are you targeting small businesses for audit, for scrutiny? You know, is it, don't you have other better things to do in terms of enforcing the, the tax code? Such as that EITC thing. Something there, else. Right, Everyone right, has right. their own or right. offshore tax or right. other kinds of tax evasion schemes. The truth of the matter is the IRS is going after all of it. But I tell that story because it goes to the point. It's like just because there's a gap and a balance due doesn't mean that there's a coalition of the willing politically to go after it. So you essentially live with these errors. When I remember when I was at OMB before I got to the IRS, briefing one of the tax, I think it was Ways and Me, I can't remember which committee it was, it was the staff on earned income tax credit error, and they were like, just go away, OMB. Like, this is, we're fine. Like, all, the people that were at the table, like, we care about preserving the tax credit and making sure it's a healthy going concern in the future. And if that and expanding means, it. And yeah, if that means it has a twenty five percent error, it's cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. um, but if but if any steps that you're gonna take to eliminate that error are gonna compromise the the success of this program or the the health of the the sustainability of the program, we're not interested. And I'm I'm not gonna sit here and say whether that's a reasonable or unreasonable position. What I'm saying is, is that position sustains at the end of the day, and you end up having a program which has had a 25% error rate for many, many, many years. And so we just live with that reality. But then at a convenient point in time, you could have an IG article, a major hearing, uh, uh, you know, a nightline story that's kind of exposing government waste and 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 probably and typically seen as uh, kind of an underlying incompetency of government. But if you scratch deeper beneath the surface, 
there are probably elements of where the government could be doing a better job, but there's also definitely an element of collectively the various policymakers are deciding to move forward with this error because the things necessary to change it are not palatable from either a policy or political standpoint. Is there a good summary in the budget? Is it in the analytical perspectives uh, section? Is there a good summary of tax expenditures? I think there is, actually. Uh, It's probably in the appendix or the analytical perspectives. Uh, But certainly there there is. I mean, it's probably the one thing that might be more boring than this podcast, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of reviewing that. But I don't know, why do you ask? No, it just seems that, you know, we spent, there's a lot of time, effort, and energy spent on how much the government spends directly. And the only time we have these conversations about these indirect expenditures is through discussions about tax cut bills. Yeah. In which we're trying to, you know, um, argue over reducing people's, you know, funding of the government even more. Without any sense, I think, of the kind of the stuff in between and saying, well, look, if we if we simply eliminate if we simply had, as you described in the earlier section, a much more streamlined and direct and, and kind of clearer and simplified tax policy, then you would have a, a clearer alignment between revenue coming in and expenditures going out. Yeah. We have this interstitial space in which you have kind of expenditures going out in the form of revenue not coming in by getting a tax deduction or a tax credit or some kind of other tax incentive. Yeah, and what has what has been my focus for many years in my career is the fact that in many cases the 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 non-compliant elements of those programs are deemed in certain contexts to be erroneous and problematic and a symbol of government gone wrong when maybe we should just redefine it because if the reality for going back to your income, income tax credit, if if there if you have to hit this bullseye and be not only poor but a certain you have a certain kind of pedigree around your uh, your poverty in order to be or your low income status around your household makeup and other dimensions your asset holdings whatever it is uh, in order to be eligible and, but if you're if you've lived with your dependent child for four and a half months rather than six months and that's now an error. And it's treated in many reports as the same level of error as someone who's fraudulently, you know, using a fake social security number to get an earned income tax credit, and it's egregious. The question then becomes: Should some of that error be reclassified? Is it really an error if you're, you know, in other words, if you simplified the code? I think this is one of the real issues. And, and maybe the issue is that there's an attempt to use the code to do things that maybe the tax code shouldn't be doing. That the EITC has really become yeah, that really a be focus of yeah. income transfer because we've decided that welfare, you know, direct income transfer is 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 anathema. And the reality is, the IRS is not really set up in its DNA mm-hmm. to administer a benefit a benefit type program. Although and, I would argue it's probably the biggest benefit program in the federal government. But, but again, in determining eligibility in that way, like figuring out someone's like. The education department, for example, has to figure out your income status in order to issue a student uh, student loan or a Pell Grant. The, um, uh, Medicaid, the Medicaid, you know, has to determine your eligibility. Uh, same thing with uh, SNAP. Or well, how do they determine the eligibility? You fill out a form, you check some boxes, you well, mark, and then there's you mark all... some lines, and you 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 follow a table on on page 32, and then they say yes or no. That's right. pretty much what the IRS does when no, you file the, your taxes. No, but the, uh, 
the other agencies just have a different um, setup in terms of how they administer those programs, how they connect with state governments, how they, um, you know, they just they have inf- different infrastructure that's built up to uh, de- determine these eligibility factors and run data checks and cross checks. And believe me, they don't they don't do it all that well sometimes because it's very difficult. Yeah, yeah. The improper payments in the grant world are probably. They're, yeah, I mean, but not nearly what the IRS has in terms of twenty five percent. No one, no one comes close to that actually in terms of the. Uh, in terms of the error rate. And so the, uh, the point I was trying to make earlier around simplification, imagine you simplify the earned income tax credit and said, look, we're going to get rid of this childhood residency requirement. We're going we're to make it just kind of more, you know, kind of binary, like, are you at this income level or not? And what that ends up doing, and here's the tension and the challenge, is that it creates more eligibility. So it, it's hard to, if you're, you, let's say the amount that, that you want to go out from a budget standpoint and earn income, income tax credit is like, is $20 billion a year, okay? That's the, that's the your, your thought process for what the general budget should be and what we can afford to, to pay each year for an earned income tax credit. Well, if I suddenly simplify, get rid of childhood residency, get rid of some of these other requirements, then if you're not careful, then the amount of eligible people will be $40 billion or $50 billion. And some would say, well, that's great. Then more people that are marginally poor uh, or, or you know, will also get the tax credit and benefit from it. Some people say that. Other people will say, well, no, 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 where does this end? And we have, we have to control the deficit. And you just can't double the amount of an income maintenance program in the interest of simplifying the application process. And so I think one of the things that you, the tension that you struggle with when you try to simplify the tax code is if you simplify it in certain ways, you can create, you know, deficit problems in terms of how much money is coming in or going out. And this tax credit uh, thing that we're talking about is a good example of that. So you have to try to solve for that. So how do the, um, how do the tax writing committees in Congress kind of factor into this? We've got to make sure we go through the whole process. Yeah. Well, again, I, and we should have mentioned this earlier because the tax policy, like, this is a very integrated group. Ways and Means, Senate Finance, the Joint Committee on Taxation, or JCT, um, working with tax policy. OMB is not irrelevant to this. They, they have a say. The IRS steps in with their kind of viewpoint on what's administrable or not. Um, and when the system is working well, um, they're, they're triangulating the various policy tensions involved in changing the tax code. Uh, they're scoring the impact. JCT does a lot of scoring. CBL, so here you have JCT and CBL can both kind of collectively right. come up with so their own score. Once, once again, you have an, an equally um, bifurcated kind of relationship on the Hill side as you do on the administration side. Yeah. Where, where ways and means being kind of the almost the original committee kind of an Article One committee feels like the CBO is a bit of a interloper yeah. on their space. So it's it's really interesting to watch the debate go forward on on tax reform now that kind of now that we're living it post my IRS days and I have a different perspective on it. But on I would say this on both the policy and the administration side, there's no magic bullet answer, right? So, you know, you want, you know, in on what you're seeing play out with the, the bigger debate, the, the big policy debate, is 
you make one group happy by changing this, you make a whole other set of groups unhappy. So you go to those other groups and you try to tweak that, and then you create a new complexity, and it's like this puzzle that you never actually can solve. It's a bit of a Rubik's Cube. Something. Where you get some... that one face and you screwed up the other three. Exactly. And that is, that's the po that's a lot of policies like that, but tax policy is in particular like that. Four-dimensional Rubik's Cube where you get time involved. And... Unless, unless you're just going to blow up the deficit. Right. Right. And if you're going to try to like make everybody feel like at the end of it, they're economically better off before the reform and then after the reform, the only way to do that is you blow through the deficit. So what, so in trying to control the deficit, you have to make these trade-offs and you create winners or losers sure. throughout. Because it's by definition a zero-sum game, which is why people then want to introduce the notion of dynamic scoring. Yeah. So then you can you can say, no, I'm, I'm everyone's a winner. Yeah. And so what I'm introducing, an interesting corollary to that on the implementation side, this concept of let's simplify the code. Let's make it streamlined. Let's make it so easy you can do your taxes on a postage card or something mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. which is a really noble idea. And, 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 in, and in the 21st century, you would think we would get to a point where we can really simplify this whole process. But what I'm saying is, is that when you try to do that, using the earned income tax credit as an example, you also potentially open the floodgates. Was my, my high school classmate, Austin Goolsby, was a big uh, fan of the postal card. It's a bipartisan thing. I've yeah. heard it from both, because Austin's a Democrat. I've heard Paul Ryan say it. Sure. It's a really, it, again, it's noble, but the question is, is can you do it without kind of creating a, a very different footprint of what people owe or what they're owed and um, so let, let's yeah. do that in a in a later show. We'll get Austin Goolsby and Paul Ryan on here and, oh, and see that's... if we can get them to write. Well, it. you're friends with uh, Austin. Yeah, I I know. I've met Paul Ryan okay. in, in well, hearings. There you go. There you go. In fact, so... like there's like you know if you Google me, it's like one of the first things that pops up is like Paul Ryan slams Danny mm. Werfel. So so he owes you one. I think so. Yeah. Uh, okay. Actually, he's one of uh, one of the key people that works for. Uh, Paul Ryan is uh, Austin Smythe, who used to be. Oh, so it's like one degree of Austin. Austin. We get two Austins. Yeah, we could get Austin. Right. And yeah, Austin, Austin was uh, was at OMB for for roughly. I think he was there for all eight years, like day one to 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 January nineteenth um, in the Bush administration. And I work closely with yeah, him. Name's He's familiar. a great guy. Yeah, great. really. And he went and he went to go work for Paul Ryan. So uh, okay. yeah, we have other future guests. But well, I, I, I wish I had found a subject uh, for us to talk about that you were interested in and, and could have engaged you. But regrettably, no, we, really we picked this one. Not passionate so, at yeah. all about it. Yeah, this will be a throwaway episode, apparently. Well, what what's your passion? What, well, let's pick a topic where I I think we'll let the we'll let people decide. And then we'll surprise them. I think travel policy is travel your policy. Pol absolutely. Like yeah. government travel policy. Sure. Who doesn't? Like if love there's that? an update to like the OMB circular on oh government my God. charge stop, cards. Stop. Stop. <laughs> I'm getting. Can too we make excited. sure that we that we have a whole <laughs> yeah. podcast on that? Yeah. Well, you know, if you watch your pennies, your dollars will watch themselves. But you're in the IRS, so you know. What do you know about that? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I still have one more thing before we break. So yes, uh, this is John Koskinen's last week. At the IRS. I just, I just sent him an email uh, asking him if he was still in the building. Yeah, I, uh, I think there's a going away ceremony for him tomorrow, actually. Well, the day we're taping this. But, um, and uh, I just want to reflect that, uh, you know, he had a hard, a hard, you know, a hard journey there. He, 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 he rescued me 
uh, back in December of 2013. He stuck through the whole term. He's amazing. Yeah, you know, yeah, an amazing uh, public servant. He was uh, really amazing when I got to work with him at OMB and saw him in particular when he was leading the Y2K efforts. Yeah. Um, he was and, uh, he was city administrator of DC before yeah. I was. So I told uh, the day he was nominated, uh, it was like August first or something, two thousand thirteen, and uh, right around that. And I called my senior leadership team in about a half hour before his name. When I was like, I, I had I had the embargoed information, but Treasury was like, can I said, can I tell my team so they don't hear about it on the news? And I said, yeah, but you got to wait, like you know. So I was like a half hour before it comes out. And the line that I used with the team, and I meant it from my heart, was because I had been there, you know, a little under a year uh, in the interim capacity. And I said, I said, you've had the student, now you'll have the teacher. <laughs> like, 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 I used to m try to model sure. my risk management uh, and crisis management approach around kind of the Koskinen way of, of doing things. Um, and then... Uh, I ran into one of those senior leaders, someone that uh, who's still at the IRS, and I have a really good really Actually, it was like an award ceremony where John was being uh, awarded for something. And I was like, oh, if I ever get invited to a John Koskinen award, I'm going. Like, I'm going to be there to clap and everything. And so I run into him. We're sitting next to each other. And, and he says to me, he's like, I hope you don't take offense to this. But John Koskinen is the best boss I've ever had, <laughs> and I was like, no "Me too." Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. I was like, "No offense at all. I think he was the the right time, right, right guy at the right time." And I just want to reflect that uh, that just an appreciation for uh, for his service there. Yeah, and chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you know who he is. But if you don't, Google John Koskinen so you can see what uh, what a great public servant and great patriot looks like. Yeah, well, if, if you Google him, unfortunately, you got to get past some of the... No, read that stuff, too. Read uh, that stuff, too, because well, he persisted his way through that. He was so. great. Yeah, yeah he, he was did really a great, great job. He's a, yeah, it's, a, it's a model to follow. Yeah. So, okay. Thanks. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for listening to GovActually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, me at dan at govactually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us. Thanks again.